creative writing as a way of connecting with our lives. And for me, as a writer, there's a way of writing that I aspire to that connects me more deeply with my life rather than um, you know, distancing me from it. And how is that? And how do we put things into words in a way that brings us closely to the living reality, which is beyond words? And how can words focus our attention? And so for me, journaling was a way of focusing my attention. I was much more intermittent than I would have wished. <laughs> and, and yet, you'll be grateful for anything that you put down. And of course, lots of journal entries didn't make it into the book were just ramblings. I mean, they were just moaning or fretting or writing journal and then a shopping list in the middle of it. I mean, that's the nature of, of the mind because writing is a way of connecting with the nature of mind and also the nature of existence and process of connecting with the aliveness of your own mind and heart and life as it flickers by and really using words as a way of not capturing it like in the sense of capturing a butterfly and sticking it on a pin, but almost bowing down to it, having a, an homage to life, whether or not you share that with, with anybody else, that the process of writing itself can be a kind of meditation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Intimacy with the World podcast. I am Dorita Ho, your host on this show, where we explore what it really means to live a meaningful life. Today, my guest is Anne Cushman. Anne is an author of both fiction and nonfiction. She is also a meditation and yoga teacher. And it has been said that Anne is a pioneer in the integration of mindfulness embodied meditation and creative expression. Anne is also a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Her books include the memoir The Mama Sutra, the novel Enlightenment for Idiots, the mindful yoga book Moving into Meditation, and more. And her essays on spiritual practice in daily life have appeared in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, O, the Opera Magazine, and many other publications. And Anne says this about herself. Part of me is a yogini, devoted to using the tools of posture and breath and meditation to awaken to a reality that lies beyond words, that's larger than the stories we humans endlessly recite about who we are, who we have been, and who we might become. But another part is a storyteller, devoted to putting things into words, to spinning real and imaginary tales designed to entrance an audience with the very dramas that spiritual practice is determined to transcend. So this is all very interesting, this juxtaposition of very like daily real life and, and spiritual practice that kind of wants to transcend all of that. And her most recent book, The Mama Sutra, renders this arc of motherhood as an awakening practice. And our conversation today springs largely from that absolutely gorgeous book. So here you have it. 
my conversation with Anne Cushman about bringing our mindfulness practice into the realness and messiness of our daily lives. Hello, Anne. I'm so pleased to see you. So good to have you here today. Wonderful to be here with you as well. <laughs> so I almost always start by asking um, all the meditation teachers that I'm uh, that I'm speaking with about uh, how they came to to meditation in the first place. I know that you've been meditating for I don't know thirty years or something. Is that right? That's right. Gosh, probably going on. 40 amazingly at this point. Yeah. yeah, and I really stumbled into it quite by accident. I was a student in university and it was my second year of university and I was looking through the course guide for a class that did not meet too early in the morning. <laughs> and <laughs> and I saw this class that got great reviews in the student course guide called The Self and World Religions. And it met at 11 o'clock, which I figured I could manage. And I went into this class and it was as if the professor every week was talking about the most intimate, important questions of human existence, which I was in my late night explorations and discussions with my friends wondering about. And then I would come in and this is exactly what he was speaking to. And especially the section on Buddhism and Hinduism and the yogic practices of meditation and mind-body awareness were so compelling to me that at the end of that class, I decided it was time to declare a major and I decided I would become a religion major <laughs> and that I would focus on these questions and particularly that I would concentrate in Buddhism and Hinduism. And what I discovered as I began taking the classes is I was reading all these books that were telling me that it could not be found in books. And I was writing all of these essays and papers about topics where they said, oh, you can't really get to this in words. And so I decided that I needed to start seeking out actual teachers. And I began doing that. I began visiting the local Zen center and looking for yoga classes. And that was how I found my pathway in. Yeah. And and I, I, I teach also, but uh, meditation and mindfulness. But I know that a lot of the people who start coming to meditation classes, um, not all of them will continue. So I'm always a bit curious about what is it that makes a young person say, because I teach at the University of Granada, I teach mindfulness. So many of my students are young, the age you would have been when you started. What is it that makes one continue to meditate? Or what is it that made you continue to meditate? How come you didn't just, oh, that, that was nice to learn and do it for six months or whatever. How, how come that it called so deeply to you that you're, you're still doing it? I think for myself, and I think this is true for many people, is it's both um, what they would call in Buddhist practice suffering and the end of suffering, right? I think that we're compelled because there is some kind of pain or discomfort or on the mild end, just stress and unease and on the stronger end, tremendous grief or loss that we're looking for a way through and that we have the experience in the meditative practices that there is a doorway 
through which we can walk, not around our pain and suffering, but right through it in the middle of it and find some kind of ease in our lives um, and joy in our lives that's possible without necessarily fixing all the circumstances in our life so that everything is perfect and we never experience discomfort or suffering or loss. And so I really think that that's often what keeps people going. Because if everything were fine in your life and there was no feeling that, you know, there's something a little missing or hard, why would you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is a component of alleviation and learning to be with life as it is. Yeah, learning to be with life as it is. And I think that's why in the traditional mythology of Buddhist practice, they say that the human realm is the best realm to be incarnated into, because if you're incarnated in the realm of the gods, there's not enough motivation to actually practice and wake up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what I mainly wanted to talk to you about, of course, <laughs> is your your book. Now, I've listened to your book twice on Audible. <laughs> mm. I mean, that I think that's that, that in, in, in the span of three months. That, that's that's uh, because it's a really good book. It's such a good listen. It's like I mean, it's not a novel, but it almost seems like a novel the way it's written um the way it's structured it's like oh i want to know what's going to happen next oh my god how's she going to get out of that and how she's going to handle that and yeah so your 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 book is called the mama sutra and then it says i'm going to have to read it here a story of love loss and the path of motherhood and so the overarching theme of your of your book of course is motherhood as a path to awakening and, and yet anyone who is a mother, I'm, a, I'm the mother of two, two daughters, uh, knows that it is very beautiful to be a mother, but they also know how hard it actually is to have small children and, and even teenagers, you know, you get very little sleep, you get no time for yourself, arguments with your partners, all you do is breastfeed, change diapers, prepare food, walk back and forth in your living room, trying to comfort or get your baby to sleep and on and on. So in short, very little time for anything else than being a mother. So I want to start with this well-known well notion that isn't having children an impediment to spiritual practice? <laughs> Well, that's such a great question. And there certainly, if you look at the tradition, the written and um, passed down inherited tradition of these practices, that was one of the traditional teachings, right? That you needed to leave your life in order to have some kind of awakening. And I think that that's partly an artifact of the fact that for generations, for millennia really, these teachings were transmitted and passed down largely by celibate monastic men. And so, of course, they felt this was the best way because that was the way that they were practicing and the way that they were finding awakening. And I think there's really been a revolution in the way these teachings are presented and taught um, in contemporary times, because I think that there's really a recognition that in any case, practice happens um, where our intention of our wise heart meets the reality of our lives. Mm. And that's true whether you are in a monastery or an ashram, 
or whether you are rocking a baby in a rocking chair, you know, while talking on the phone when, with work on your cell phone at the same time. It's this, this engagement. I think that any human activity that is approached consciously with the intention to be present mm -hmm. and to be kind and to pay attention and to wake up is a path of practice. And that motherhood and actually in many ways is particularly suited to this because motherhood, it puts us in contact, really direct, immediate, visceral connection and contact with the most mysterious aspects of human life, um, birth and death and loss and transformation and change, um, impermanence. Uh, our interconnectedness, right? Our interdependence. Um, what is the self and what happens to a person as they change over time? Motherhood really puts us right in the middle of that. And it also really calls forth our capacity to meet another human being right where they are mm -hmm. and to put another human being's needs and wishes and well-being ahead of our own in many cases, right? And to really open our hearts in that way. You have a child come into your life, however that child comes into your life, and you don't have a choice about who they are and how they are. You may think you did or you do, but you don't. And so you're learning to meet another being in this place um, and you're learning to meet your own life in this place while well, you're at your edge physically and emotionally. And there are contemplative practices in monasteries and ashrams which are explicitly designed, right, to put you at your edge. There are traditional practices, for instance, the full moon meditation where you stay up all night meditating. Well, guess what? Mothers, you might not have to wait to the full moon. <laughs> you might be <laughs> up all night anyway. And so in that case, it's a perfect vehicle for practice. And it also is a wonderful vehicle for practice because it really reveals our deep and unconscious conditioning, right? The places we're stuck, the places we're clinging, the places where our capacity to meet life and others in our environment is not perhaps as steady and wise and deep as we would wish. And it asks us to grow at that edge. And again, that's exactly what would happen in a formal meditation setting. It comes to mind. So it's impossible to do a spiritual bypassing when, if you use your motherhood as, as a, a path for awakening, because you can't bypass anything when you're when you're with small children like you as you're saying you have to be you have you really have to just be there don't you like you can't yes. lie to yourself i mean you can't sort of pretend that things are any other than they are because it's so in your face isn't it exactly it's in your face and it's demanding yeah. and and again like like any practice there are these moments of joy and bliss and the potential for this incredible deep love um perhaps when they're very little especially when they are asleep <laughs> you can gaze at their <laughs> sleeping faces and oh such full deep profound love and then also 
parts of yourself may come forward, rage and inadequacy and the, just the mundane irritation. And I wanted my day to go like this. Um, now it's going like that. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful uh, Vietnamese Zen meditation teacher, Dharma teacher, he was asked once when I was on a retreat with him, what is the difference between monastic practice and lay practice? And Thich Nhat Hanh said immediately, they are exactly the same practice, except monastic practice is harder. And uh, um, no, excuse me, I got that wrong. He said yeah. they are exactly the same practice, except that lay practice is harder. Um, that it's harder to be a lay practice, a lay practitioner, because in the monastery, you have all of the support, right? You have the schedule, which is very steady and reliable and built in time for for um, formal meditation practices and teachings, which are constantly reminding you to um, center yourself and be present and look below the surface of what might be happening. And the life of a mother, there is less structure and whatever structure you put in, again, could easily be tossed out the window by the events of the day. Yeah. And so it's the same practice, as he said, but more challenging because you have less support. And so then the task as a mother is to really look at where can I build in that support? Um, where can I find these islands of formal practice, even if just five minutes of a formal meditation practice or a little bit of gentle yoga that can help to recenter us and connect us so that we can return to the more informal practice with uh, more resources for meeting yeah. it. So, so you, of course, you had already been practicing for many, many years, both yoga and meditation when you became a mother. Um, so I imagine you were I imagine it would have been easier for you to, or how did you find it? Did you, did you find it easy to, to do what you're saying here now? <laughs> well, I hope you got the feeling from reading my book that I did not find it easy. And part of what I'm really wanting to do in the Mama Sutra is talk about the realities of the journey, because I think there are plenty of teachings and books that talk about the ideals and yes, it, you can practice your mindfulness meditation and then you'll be so mindful and present with your <laughs> child. And if not, you'll come immediately back to center because you'll notice. I just, I was stunned at how hard it was. And yes, I had a lot of years of what, in Thich Nhat Hanh's words, would have been the more easy practice, the practice with support, although I was not from most of that time in a formal retreat setting, I was able to go in and out of retreat. And I was able to order my life as a practitioner and writer such that I got up early in the morning and meditated and did yoga, ideally before I even spoke to anybody and then had a silent breakfast and then did some writing. And all of that support went out the window and I really got to see how dependent I was upon it. How that what I had thought was a kind of a capacity for steadiness and presence was very circumstantially dependent. And so this was taking it to another level of how do I do it when those circumstances have really been altered. 
Yeah, I think that is so important to keep in mind what you're saying about circumstances, because for I have been reflecting on this just lately, because my, my life is relatively easy now. My daughter, my little one is 10, and my other one's 23. She's studying in, in, in another country at the university. And I think life is pretty easy and harmonious these days. And I have to remind myself, yes, it's because your circumstances are great right now. Don't, don't think that you're so centered and so serene. Well, I am centered and serene right now, but, 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 but it's mainly because the circumstances allow for it. And, and I mean, the Tibetans have this, don't they have this notion to put uh, firewood on the, on, the, on the fire? Like if nothing's happening, you need difficulty to grow, don't, or it seems that we need difficulty to grow. It certainly can be fuel for the practice. It certainly can be, as in one of my teachers would say, grist for the mill. Yes. And that if we have the attitude of practice, whatever comes into it can be grist for that mill. And it's wonderful in these circumstances when things are harmonious. That's actually a great time to train and to really take advantage of that to notice, I mean, even that awareness, like, oh, this is a stable time. This is a time of ease. Can I rest in this? It will not always be so. And this is a, a circumstances change and arise and come together largely with factors that are outside of our control. So in these moments of ease, we can train and practice and cultivate and that's where the formal practices can be so useful because we can cultivate capacities of the mind and the heart and the body and the nervous system mm -hmm. that can serve us when they're more chaotic mm -hmm. and if you happen to come to motherhood and then it's while you're in the midst of that that you begin to turn toward this aspiration that's wonderful because really you're in a training ground and you are always in a training ground, whether you're in a more controlled and kind of retreat-like setting, you're training with that. And if you're in the chaos of new motherhood or the challenges of parenting teenagers or young adults, that's where you are. And that fundamental aspect of the mindfulness teachings, which is that you always begin where you are and that you're always a beginner on that level it's not like you know so i have 10 years under my belt i've really i'm a black belt meditator now you're still you've never been here now before and you are meeting this you're bringing the fullness of your mind and heart to this unique set of challenges and it's really challenging like i have just another story about this lay versus monastic practice. I attended for many years when my son was younger at the family retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center here in California. And the family retreat was a wonderful, glorious, chaotic event where whole families would come, parents and children, and sometimes, you know, multiple parents and multiple children, or just <laughs> one parent and one child. And there would be teachings for the adults, but also teachings for the children of every age group. And it's the only retreat I've ever been on at any meditation center where there was a water slide, uh, you know, slip and slide, <laughs> and an art tent for, for coloring. 
But part of the beauty of that retreat was that they would bring um, always in addition to parents who were teaching it, um, a monastic would come and be there. And so the children could be exposed to somebody who had a different life path and the teachers and the parents could study with the monastic. And it was really quite radiantly beautiful to see the the monk in the robes sitting with the kids coming up and asking all kinds of questions, everything like, well, you know, do you shave your head? Do you shave your armpits too? And you know, these <laughs> kinds of questions. Um, but I was speaking with one of the monks and he was sharing that he had once been invited down to the Bay Area and for two different teachings that he was going to be giving. One was in um, a prison, um, working with people who in many cases had life sentences in the prison, and then the other was going to an elementary school. And he said, prison, piece of cake. I was not at all nervous about bringing the teaching there. He said, I was petrified of going and teaching fifth graders. He said, I just had no idea what, yeah. how I would do it and what I would say and how I would respond. So the, uh, yeah, I can kind of understand that. Like you're, you're so sheltered in a monastery and there are no children's in monastery and they have a different mind. I mean, an adult mind is different from a child's mind. <laughs> They'll ask you anything, the children. <laughs> Yes, they will. They'll ask you, they'll ask you anything. And the children used to do little skits in which they, you know, uh, made fun of the of the monks and the monks would sit and laugh and laugh and, and the monks would go gather around the campfire and have s'mores with the children. <laughs> and it was just a completely different kind of exposure. But children are very unpredictable and very yeah immediate they call forth that quality of spontaneity and immediacy and authenticity is really demanded and those are such central pieces of the uh, of the art of contemplative practice really yeah for sure for sure so I, I know this is very hypothetical but I just I just have to ask you so you had all those years of practice already, maybe 15 or 20 years of practicing meditation before you became a mother. And, and also, I, I really recommend people to, to read the book or listen to it on Audible because it's just such a gorgeous book. It's, it's really captivating and very thoughtful and you learn a lot. But, um, but you do actually lose your first child and your book starts with that. And I mean just just to imagine lo losing a child but then you get a second child about a year later or a bit more than a year later your second child comes um but i'm thinking you went through so much and your your son your second child he was he was very demanding as a baby like because he was very sensitive so you had to you couldn't really put him down he had to be on on you all the time so I'm just thinking, and I know it's hypothetical, if you hadn't had practiced meditation before and learned some of those techniques and already incorporated some of those ways of meeting the edges, of meeting difficulty, how do you think you would have managed without? Because I mean, losing a child and then having another child and you're still grieving and you're having to deal with a, a child that's really needs, asks a lot of you. He needed to be with you all the time. So how do you, how do you think, I know it's hypothetical, that would have gone with, without any practice? 
Oh, it's it's really hard for me to to imagine, and I think that um, there are many ways that it it could or can go. I mean, I can imagine, for instance, being completely taken down by the grief yeah. and having the grief of the loss um, harden me yes. in some way, or that 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 it might be that the only way I had been able to get through would be by hardening and shutting down and numbing out. Um, and again, I, I don't want to say this in a way that it sounds like to somebody who may not have practice that, oh, well, you're screwed because <laughs> you no. don't have this, because I think there are so many in, I think life has a way in the moment of bringing us the resources that we need. And that there are so many, if someone's going through a loss and a grief, if they haven't had a practice, there are places to turn where you can be held in this way um, and where you can be helped with the skills that you need to get through, whether it's through a church that you might be part of or close friendships with, you know, wise, tender friends or family or grief groups. There are resources that you can turn to. And so it just happened in my case, the resource that I I turned into because that was what was deepest in my heart were these powerful teachings and practices which had, had held me, but in which in some way I had never quite needed in this way before. Yeah. I hadn't, it's like I had practiced and studied everything is impermanent and and it and life will always change and that and that those who are dearest to you could be lost at any moment i thought i knew that but now i knew it in a different way and and it was as if i hadn't known at all and so in that in that pain this is what i turned to and what I feel one of the gifts it gave me was that instead of it being, um, instead of the long-term effect being a hardening and a shutting down, mm -hmm. the long-term effect was a tenderizing of the heart. Yeah. You know, it's like one of the things is that, oh, I feel this grief and how many others have felt this grief? How many others humans have lost a child and felt this unfathomable grief mm -hmm. and the compassion i think the invitation and in practice is that grief and loss worked with consciously um, over time can um, rather than hardening us or numbing us can be a gateway into meeting our lives and our human vulnerable hearts and the vulnerable human tender hearts of others with more kindness and and with more empathy and more a feeling of like oh yes as i suffer so do you yeah. and i think that for me these practices that was what helped me arrive at that and again there are many ways that people yeah. can arrive at that yeah i i i love this I'm going to read this. This is from your book, and this is in relation to your grief. Um, your daughter's name was Sierra. And you say, I used to think that spiritual practice would be a way of lessening the pain of grief, 
that I could escape into some detached witness consciousness. But in fact, we are attached to life as primal as the umbilical cord, thick and coiled and throbbing with blood. That is so beautiful. I, I get goosebumps reading that. Um, so I would love to hear you talk about, because people who have practiced a little bit of mindfulness, they know about this observer, like you're, you're observing your experience. And, and what's the relationship between that observer and your real life, as you say, with blood and, and death and tears and chaos and messiness? Uh, how would you speak about those things, the observer and what's really going on, the ups and downs? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And um, I know the word observer is sometimes used and it's it has a one particular flavor. I find more and more the word that I use is it's a capacity to meet our life or to hold our life because that has less of that flavor of I'm somehow detached from it, um, that I think our practice cultivates in us this capacity, this loving awareness is a phrase that's sometimes used, or mindfulness, um, this capacity to meet our lives, hold our lives, and to rest in something that's larger than the contents of our experience. Um, and I think that's also what this word, the observer or witness points to. It's more in the sense of bearing witness, right? Like there's, we have access as human beings to a quality of being, or um, sometimes Thich Nhat Hanh calls it an energy, the energy of mindfulness. This is an inherent, of our capacity as human beings. And we can train up and cultivate our ability to connect with that and rest in that so that when joyful things arise, we are present for them, we're holding them, we're really feeling it. And when really painful or difficult things arrive in ourselves or in others, we're able to hold that. Um, and hold it from a place where we are not completely swept away by it. And again, we're human. So that capacity comes and goes, our access to it rather comes and goes. I believe it's always there. Um, we can find, we can learn through these practices to find it more easily for those pathways to it to come more easily. And, and then from that place, when, great grief arise, arises, again, it's not like we're witnessing in the sense we're there with our arms crossed, kind of watching, you know, it's more like we're like a mother with a child, right? Where you're not trying to stop the, the child is hurt, and you're not just trying to stop them crying, but you're holding them in your arms while they cry. And you're just there as that wave goes through, and they are having their feelings. Um, so that's the kind of witness that we're speaking of. It's that capacity to hold and and to offer kindness and to say, oh, to that part of us that's so grieving. Yes, that's very hard. And human beings feel like this sometimes, I know. And it's so mm -hmm. difficult. And 
Thich Nhat Hanh says, you're then keeping yourself company, right? So if you're angry, you have mindfulness keeping your anger company. You're, if you're grieving, you have mindfulness keeping your grieving company. So your grief is not alone. Yeah. And that's that's how the witness or the the observer, I think that's how I think of it now. Yeah, I think that's so important to to talk about, actually. You know, when I first started uh, with mindfulness, I was so curious. I, I just couldn't stop inquiring about, but this observer or this witness, this this thing that, that observes, this mindfulness, who is it? Where is it? How? What's it like? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it? And I remember asking actually one of my Tibetan teachers, um, and I was insisting, and he said, he was like a little bit exasperated with me. And he says, Dorita, I think it's God. I think it's God. Mm. <laughs> and another time, oh, that was another mentor. She said, I think it's your soul. I think it's your soul because I kept pushing the, the, the theme like, but wh who is it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the observer. And, and I think it's so beautiful what you're saying that it's this capacity of, of great warmth, of great, of great holding capacity that's innate in all of us and that we can call upon anytime we remember to call upon it. Yes, and in a sense, what we get better at with practice is remembering. Yeah. And it, like the, the way home starts to become more familiar. And, and then still, I mean, we're human, we, <laughs> we forget. And then these encounters with our children, to come back to the theme of motherhood, can help us remember. And I'm, I'm sure you've had this moment as a mother where, I mean, I remember many times I'd be doing something in the kitchen and like getting busy with something and my child would be there talking to me about something and I'd be saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and then suddenly I would tune in and something he was saying and I'd, I'd realize, oh, I need to be really present for this. And there's that moment of coming back. I mean, ideally, I would have been right there all along. But this moment of, oh, wait, you know, I'm not just on autopilot saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, but, oh, now I'm really here. Yeah. Tell me about this. Maybe I'll put the onion down for a moment and tune in. And they know the difference so well. They know intuitively the difference from when you're truly listening and present and when you're just saying the aha, aha. <laughs> yeah, and it can even be that in meditation. Like I know, for instance, doing a kind of meditative practice, say you're doing a practice very simple of you know, breathing in and out and you're just kind of to help yourself be present, you're saying in, out. I can be sitting there in meditation kind of going in, out with my breath and then some other part of me it's as if i'm saying uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> to my whole experience my life is there like a child telling me a story and i'm even though i'm going through the motions i'm just right there or i can do a yoga practice that i'm familiar with like i can do a sun salutation and once you kind of know the basic moves i could you know you can be doing that and thinking about something completely other or you can be right there in the breath, in the movement, in how is my body today? How is my child today? 
who is my child today? I mean, I remember at one point my, my son saying to me in some conversation we were having, um, he said, I think you're confusing me with the previous version of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say to to listeners again, the book is so funny because your son, he, Forrest, he is very, very funny. He says the strangest things that make you laugh. <laughs> yes. And of course, as a parent, that's just the case with your children. I'm sure everybody has a book full of stories about their children. And um and these gems, that's another part of being a parent is that the gems that your your children um, come out with and the questions and the things that they make you think about in their in your interactions with them. Yeah, and this this brings me to this. You are journaling throughout your whole because you are a writer and you kind of had the idea already early on and before your children were born that I'm going, I might write about this. I might write a book about this. So you were journaling throughout your, your whole motherhood and pregnancies and so on. So all those gems that Forrest said, you, you wrote them down and, and that's wonderful for the book and so on. But I'm also thinking the role of, of journaling. Do you, do you still journal? How do you, is that not also a way to process, to, to center, to, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a pretty mindful practice, isn't it? Because you're kind of observing your life and, or witnessing or meeting your life in the journal. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. And writing has been a practice for me since the early days of my practice. And it's been an essential part. And in fact, one of the things I teach is writing as a meditative practice. I'll teach these um, retreats or daylongs or classes where we combine embodied meditation and creative writing as a way of connecting with our lives. And for me, as a writer, there's a way of writing that I aspire to that connects me more deeply with my life rather than, um, you know, distancing me from it. And how is that? And how do we put things into words in a way that brings us closely to the living reality, which is beyond words? And how can words focus our attention? And so for me, journaling was a way of focusing my attention. I was much more intermittent than I would have wished, <laughs> and and yet you'll be grateful for anything that you put down. And of course, lots of journal entries <laughs> didn't make it into the book were just ramblings. I mean, they were just moaning or fretting or <laughs> writing journal and then a shopping list in the middle of it. I mean, that's the nature of, of the mind because writing is a way of connecting with the nature of mind and also the nature of existence. And I was very much shaped in the early days of my writing practice by my dear friend, Natalie Goldberg, whose book, Writing Down the Bones, I discovered when I was shortly out of college. And that was when it first came out. And um, then our paths crossed many times over the years on meditation retreats and, and in the kind of Buddhist meditative world. But her approach to writing is still very central to how I write, which is that process of connecting with the aliveness of your own mind and heart and life as it flickers by and really using words as a way of not 
capturing it, like in the sense of capturing a butterfly and sticking it on a pin, mm. but almost bowing down to it, having a, an homage to life, whether or not you share that with, with anybody else, that the process of writing itself can be a kind of meditation. Yeah. And so that's very much how I use it and still use it. Yeah, but it doesn't, don't you also find that it gives you a kind of a perspective on your life that it can open up uh, something that you hadn't like more, it can open up doors to wisdom also about how can I be with this? Because when you're yes. just caught up in your mind and something is difficult or something is very irritating or frustrating, you just go in circles and you try and solve this and you can't solve it because there's no distance. You're so caught up. Whereas when you're journaling about it, sometimes you get that clarity where uh, it's okay. It's like this. It's, I can hold it. I can be with this. As you, as you say, I can meet this. Exactly. And then also there's often a part of ourself that can come through onto the page. It's almost like a part that for me, it'll be like, I hadn't thought of that until it came out my fingers onto the page. Yeah. It it came from some other place through me. And then I'm it's as if it's speaking to me off the page. And I think that's something that we can open into as writers as well. It's like it become a doorway for different parts of ourselves to emerge. And it's wonderful to have a place where that can emerge and then also where we can reflect on our life and see it more clearly. It's like it, it can give access to that space in which we see, um, in which we know and, and honor our life and our memories. It's just really beautiful for me when I'm working there. these days, I've been leading retreats and classes for women, um, which I called Write Your Way Home. And they, they bring in creative writing and meditation. And to hear the stories that emerge from that, um, the things and over and over again, people say, I didn't know I remembered that until I started writing about it. I didn't know. So if you weren't keeping a journal, don't worry about it because you were there, you were seeing, you were hearing, and you were living that experience. And the meditative practice of writing can bring that back, that experience back in some ways a different way than it would have been if you had written about it at the time. It's more yeah. distilled. It's like the essence has come. I, I can't help asking you now. So, so what you say is kind of like this kind of magic that some, sometimes comes true when you're, when you're writing, right? That you're like, where did that come from? I didn't know that. I didn't know I was that wise. <laughs> yes. Where do you think that, where does that come from? I don't know. Maybe I'll have to write about that. <laughs> I think you might have to. <laughs> and then also just, again, not to have the bar be so high, the wise parts, but the silly parts, yes. the, the, the things like, I can't believe I'm putting this on paper. I thought I would never tell anyone about this yes. part. And the different aspects of our humanity can come forward. And also it gives us a place to put some of the material that can flow through when we're meditating. Yeah. You know, it's like when we're sitting in meditation, that's not the time to be following the thread of the story. But when we're writing, it is. 
and we're giving a place for those parts of us to come forward and play and dance and be heard and be seen and known. And yes, it can be surprising, especially um, when writing fiction, I discovered that, that I might have an idea of what I wanted my character to do or where I wanted them to go. And lo and behold, they're doing something else. <laughs> they're going somewhere else. And you can have this feeling of, oh no, don't do that. But there <laughs> they go off on their own. Yeah, I can't so. help thinking that this kind of plays into that witness, that observer, that it's it's something inside us, but it's also something connected further than just out, just inside me, that it's like this witness or this observer is like our soul or God or whatever you want to call it, that it's something uh, with tendrils much further than just little me. <laughs> yes, and I think, yeah. Absolutely. And that's why for some people, they really are called to tell the story of somebody completely different from them, um, maybe who lived in another century, or another place or on another galaxy, you know, on another planet in another galaxy. There are so many stories that may want to appear. And so there's the quality of intimately knowing our own life. Yeah. And then also there's something about whether we're writing about our life or whether we're inventing something, we're always connecting to um, all of humanity in some way. We're connecting to something larger. Yeah, I think um, that's beautiful. Yeah. So you you are just saying that you this this retreat or this course that you've been teaching now is for women and yes, women meditators and write writing. So you do mention in your book, and I wanted to ask you about the sacred feminine as maybe not opposed to, but in relation to most religions who are quite masculine or, or yeah. What, what can you tell us about your thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, and um, I think the sacred feminine is a big word. Yes. And, and so um, just to bring it a little more, you know, kind of down to earth. Yeah. I think I'm very interested in the um, spiritual journeys of women, yeah. basically, and partly and not because they're better than men or more important than those who identify as men. And by again, to say that, you know, by women, I mean, you know, anyone who identifies as a woman, whether or not you were born a woman, but there's something unique in the experience um, that has been devalued traditionally in the, um, certainly in these lineages of meditation and yoga, um, the, these stories have not always been told and celebrated and these perspectives have not always been brought forward. And so I'm just very interested in that. So what is it about um, moving through this, the world in this body, in this mind, in this set of experiences that um, offers a different perspective and rather than saying what that is which I think can be limiting as if we start to say well the feminine is more like this and more like that and then I mean it can get problematic very quickly because there may be women who say no that is not my experience so what I'm more interested in is what is your experience mm -hmm. What is your experience? And what I have found from leading women's retreats and practicing on women's retreats over the years 
is that there is a different quality that emerges both in the teaching and in the practice and in the stories that come forward. So again, rather than to say I'm making a statement here about the sacred feminine, that the ways that I have experienced the being held on a on an all women's retreat led by women teachers um, had a very different flavor to it. And the the sense of um, making room for women's bodies and women's hearts and women's emotions and women's stories in a way that didn't subtly or not so subtly devalue them and in a way that said absolutely childbirth can be an experience of deep spiritual and dharmic awakening absolutely that's worth something absolutely the experience of being a mother and raising a small ch child can be a path of awakening awakening absolutely it can um absolutely the experience of having a body that cycles through menstrual cycles and menopause and pregnancy and hormonal shifts absolutely that's an awakening path um just that is powerful and when i'm teaching writing again i've i've taught mixed groups as well it's wonderful and what i found in teaching writing in women's groups and having women share their stories then with one another that there's a level of safety um, that comes forward and a level of resonance that women are able to express things that they might not have shared because there's more of a sense that this will be understood mm. and that's a palpable feeling in these groups I, I I I know you don't want to define what the sacred feminine could be or what a awakening through a, a, a someone who identifies as a female body looks like, but you you did say that the the quality of the quality that you feel when you're there is different in a, on only women's retreat. What what are some of the things, some of those qualities, if you could put two or three words just without, of course, becoming rigid. Yeah. So, and again, I'm speaking to my particular experience. Yeah. And I also know yeah. that the general culture of meditation has changed and in some ways really been influenced by this since I began to practice. But I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things that I noticed when I went, for instance, on my first women's retreat, um, which I think was when uh, my son was two and I was actually the yoga teacher on the retreat, as well as sitting the women's retreat. Um, first thing I noticed is we're all sitting in a circle. Um, we're not sitting in rows. The teacher was not sitting up on a dais, was sitting um, in the circle, and there was an altar in the center of the circle. And so just that had a different feeling. I walked in, I'm walking into a womb. I'm walking into, and there's a phrase in meditative practice, the womb of awareness, um, Yoniso Manisakara, um, which one of my wonderful teachers, Tanisara, speaks of often. So there's that feeling of, oh, already I'm being held in a different way. And then the images in the center of the circle were all images of what you might call the sacred feminine from different cultures. But there were images with breasts and with hips and with pregnant bellies 
and they were sitting there in the center of the circle and the hangings around the outside were all dancing yoginis mm -hmm. and um it had that feeling and there was a big lush juicy bouquet of flowers in in the middle there so all right again there was a different flavor there and then of course the teachers were speaking and they were telling children stories of their experiences with their children or the pain of not having children or the delight in not having children i mean but but, but that was incorporated into the field and there was a ritual at um, the beginning where um, they invited to light candles they said is there anyone here who was pregnant and then the pregnant woman came forward and is there anyone here who's an elder and the elder could come forward and is there anyone here you know um, below the age of thus and such i don't remember what it was but it was a young woman and and so the sense of oh we're including the different facets of the journey um and there um there was a a period where we did um, art as part of it, where we were drawing. Um, so I would say there was an honoring, um, and this is something I've really brought into my teaching, whether teaching mixed groups or women's groups, um, I would say it's an honoring of the relational aspect of practice, an honoring of the embodied aspect of practice. There was definitely a lot of movement meditation incorporated there's the relational the embodied the connection with the earth um, the intuitive the non-linear um, there was more time for people to share from their experience you know and and while it was still held in silence there was more of that relational field so um, and then for many years i taught a weekly class for women and again it was very much about that about what's arising in the field mm -hmm. how can we share this what's up in your life and how can what is in your life be a doorway to practice so it was less about me or the other teacher coming in and giving a talk mm -hmm. as giving a kind of framing and then how is this showing up in your life how is your experience a doorway to understanding impermanence mm -hmm. or suffering in the end of suffering or freedom or compassion or joy all of these classic teachings the emphasis in the the teaching is how is your life a doorway into this and again i'm sure there are men's and men's circles that do this as well so i i don't want to be making a big statement here i'm just saying from my experience this is what i would say that and when i lead women's retreats still this is what i really value is these dimensions of practice yeah and i think you're absolutely right that's probably one of one more of the gifts of women taking a role in many um, areas of society that that has probably also moved into mixed retreats but probably also into men's groups that yes more relational talking about the the the, the nitty-gritty of the difficulties of life that we're not all the time pretending to be these these uh, people who have it all together and who are practicing meditation in a very uh, formal and very structured way that life's not like that so that's probably something that all these women have brought into mindfulness and buddhism and all these places it's certainly a flavor that's more 
pronounced now than when I started practicing, for sure. And then another thing I'm really excited about, actually, is with the explosion of capacity um, for online retreat, I taught an online women's retreat this last year, and I will be teaching two more next year. They're called Awake and at Home. And one of the gifts is that you can have a powerful, deep, transformative meditation retreat without leaving your home. You set up cer certain circumstances so that you can participate in this retreat. And what I loved about this retreat is that there were all these women on it with small children who never would have been able to go on retreat. And to, to feel women practicing at home, having a deep dive that that retreat practice offers them and being able to do this. And there were women all over the world because the retreat was set up so it was accessible in different time zones. And to it just brought tears to my eyes to be doing a check-in in a group as you do on retreat and have a woman saying, well, I have three children under age five and this is what I'm experiencing right now this week as I'm on this retreat. And it's the kind of conversation that couldn't happen before. And I have been such an advocate for this. I mean, before this could happen, for instance, I remember when I was running, I was running a mindfulness teacher training for yoga teachers, which was a, a multi-year program with like three long retreats over the course of two years. Yeah. And one of the women on the retreat came to me after the first retreat and she had gotten pregnant between the first and second retreat and wanted to know or discovered she was pregnant and can I continue in the program? And it was so important to me to be able to say, absolutely, you can, and this is how, and we will welcome you when your baby is little, and if you can have support family nearby and stay nearby and come, and and it's fine if you're nursing in the meditation hall, and to really support that throughout. And then at the end of the, that program, when we were all sitting in the circle at the end yeah. in our in our closing, she came with her now, I think, one and a half year old who was running around the middle of the circle as we were doing our graduation ceremony. And it felt this is so inclusive yeah. and so so beautiful and so real. I love the realness of it. Like this is actually real life. And if we can't meet real life when it's really real, then what are we doing with our meditation practice? And yeah. now for the end, I would love, and I think this is so beautiful. So my podcast is called Intimacy with the World. And in, I, 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 also, I also sometimes think I should have called it Intimacy with Life or Intimacy with Nature, because that's, what my, that's where my passion is, the nature and what we're doing to the earth or how, how it's going it's not going so well and how what we might be able to do in the future that hopefully we can develop a different relationship to the earth and what you're saying when you're speaking about these women's retreat and how you hold each other and how you sit in a circle and how everything belongs the different cycles of a woman's life and um, the earthiness of it and and be being really real and welcoming a woman that's pregnant and her pregnancy and, and all those things. To me, it's like welcoming the earth somehow. It's like welcoming a different relationship to 
mother earth that that's how we need to meet her and hold her and be with her that's what comes up for me when you speak yes absolutely and i think that if we're paying attention and part of what meditation does is it helps us pay attention this is one of the things we feel as we um, as we become a mother whether we become a mother by giving birth or welcoming a child who came through another woman's body, we are still intimately connected with this web of life. And we are experiencing how we are not separate, how life emerges from and returns from this interconnected web is held by it and supported by it um, throughout time and also in the moment and we feel this very viscerally and then once we're tuned to this it's an other doorway to caring right because we know that our child is going to be living in the world that we are creating as human beings and that we're part of this cycle of life which continues and it was so interdependent um, our child is not separate from the earth and the water and the rivers and the food that grows and the rain that falls and so that in loving our child we are loving all of life it's a portal to loving all of life because we really can't see as we look deeply where our child who is so precious to us ends and where the rest of life begins. So that's for me, one of the powerful gifts, that feeling of um, deeply knowing our connection and interconnectedness. Thank you so much for that, Anne. That is the perfect <laughs> note to end on. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely speaking with you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Anne Cushman. I love how she embraces the imperfections of life. All those times when we feel that we are falling short, but which in fact is an integral part of any human life and which belongs just as much as all the mastery, the joy and the ease of our existence. Anne Cushman's book is called The Mama Sutra and though it is not a novel, it reads like a novel and you cannot put it down. To check out more of her offerings, go to www.annecushman.com and her website will also be in the show notes. And of course, if you felt inspired or learned something in this conversation, please follow and review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. That is a great way to support this endeavor. And lastly, if you feel a bit lost in your own life or just need a bit of guidance and support on your journey to further growth, then you are also welcome to visit my website www.duritaholm.com and schedule a free 25 minutes one-on-one -on -one with me to see if we are a good fit. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode, which will be with author of many, many books and Jungian analyst, James Hollis, where we speak about how to live an examined life. Until then, be well. <laughs>